Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of M365 Voice. I'm Antonio Mayo. I'm Sarah Hazi. And I am Michael Rani. And today we're going to take another question from our jar and try to share with you our thoughts about it. Sarah, do you have our jar ready? I am. Yeah, <laughs> we are ready to go and super excited. I accidentally got two, so let me pull one back. Um, ooh, uh, this is pretty timely given the topic that everyone's been talking about since everyone has been sheltering in place. How do you manage a team's deployment and implement team's governance? Okay. Okay, that's a great topic. So it sounds like there's two topics in there. How do you yep. manage the deployment and how do you manage teams governance? Right. Tackle those two things separately. Absolutely. I think we can consider it a two part question. All right. So a team's deployment, maybe I'll ask you guys first, where do you start? Do you start with pushing it out and then deal with governance or do you plan your governance first and then push it out? Well, I think that that's actually really interesting. So I, I find that I've been having this question a lot with people uh, online. And with just talking to different consultants and people at different companies that are going after this. And I think it's really interesting because I've heard, you know, and the joke is that we're getting three years worth of IT strategic vision implemented in three months during this whole COVID pandemic. And I think it's leading a lot of companies where they had to take literally their work from the office workforce and move them to work from home within a period of one to two weeks. And they just got teams and turned it on got teams and turn it on, right? And so I think, of course, I would say we should always consider governance before we roll something out. We have to consider um, some of the big rocks, like are we gonna allow anonymous access? Are we going to federate? Are we? How are we gonna secure things? But the reality is, I think a lot of companies have just bought it and turned it on um, in recent history. I agreed, especially right now, I've, I've seen two clients lately that I've been trying to talk to them forever about M365 and the proper deployment on the Teams and, and SharePoint side. And all of a sudden, because of COVID, they just called us and we started implementing and deploying team, uh, Teams and we need the deployment plan and we'll deal with governance later on. So with COVID and trying to onboard everyone to M365, they are kind of dealing with governance later on. But from a best practice perspective, as we all know, I always promote do the governance first and then start the deployment. So that way you can start with a clean state. Yeah, I've got two clients right now that I'm dealing with that both taken the opposite approaches that we're talking about. I would always recommend plan and figure out your governance first, your security first, and then deploy, right? Always. That me, right. you guys know I come from a security and governance background. That's that's my default position. Um, but I got two that are doing it differently. One is a utility, they're about six thousand people, and they have just rolled it out to everybody, and they're now trying to deal with the governance after the fact. And then I've got another one, which is a public sector agency, a big one, like 34,000 people. And we're planning out the governance first and then rolling it out. And it's interesting to see the different topics that you deal with. Like from a governance perspective, we often start with the, the standard topics that we talk about. So things like, are you going to allow guest access? Mm -hmm. um, are you going to allow self-service creation? Mm -hmm. Are you going to implement a naming policy? Are you going to have an expiry policy? Mm -hmm. um, what else? Which use cases are you going to roll Teams out for? Are you going to roll it out for online meetings? For Are you going to roll out the Teams app? 
because that has implications. Right. Are you going to implement chat? Are you going to implement collaboration? So actual teams and channels and so on. Live events, enterprise voice. Um, and each of those has settings, like what kind of meeting policies you're going to put in. So in the one, the public sector agency where we're planning the governance first, we're doing a lot of planning effort and a lot of workshops where we sit down with each of those, the groups that are potentially affected or that have to have input. When it's government, everyone wants to have input. So you end up with these big groups of people. You go through all the different capabilities and you, you document what people are asking. You hear about the use cases. You figure out how are you going to, you know, how are you going to solve for those things? How are they managing it now? How does that translate to the cloud and teams? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes you implement new processes. So that's the whole planning effort. And then after we're gonna configure and through that process, we're gonna figure out a communication plan and a rollout plan, like a change management plan, roll it out and enable these features. So certainly a longer period of time to do it, but at the end, we're hopeful that we'll be in our end state. Yeah, and I also actually, um... If, if you don't have plan to do proper governance, at least there are some basic features that you have to govern. Uh, you're gonna have to decide on guest access, for example, and naming convention in auto uh, auto creation of Microsoft Teams. Yep. Just may put some basic features there or basic governance uh, before you roll it out. And then probably you can come back and address expiry policy. You can come back and uh, address classifications in Teams as well, uh, if you don't have the time to do though. And interestingly enough, I think it all comes down to the first place I start, whether we're looking at Teams or Yammer or any system and capability within the M365 stack, what's the use case that you're trying to solve for? And for some companies, as you said, Antonio, their use case is we're in a pandemic. We need to light up our people who are working from home and we have to do it this week. Yep. And if that's your primary driver use case, then you may be doing something that you normally would never do. And yeah. you're rolling it out and you're lighting it up with the most minimal look at governance possible. And then you're going to be sweeping back in and making sweeping changes after the fact. If you have more time to carefully consider your team's rollout, you're going to be probably settling on that use case and governance up front. So at the end of the day, the use case is still driving it. Even yeah. if that use case is, we have to do this without the normal forethought that we would put into it. Yeah, I agree. Um, we've seen another large government agency, I won't say who it is, but I've seen them light up 300,000 government employees in a brand new Teams tenant in the space of three weeks. Oh, wow. 300,000 users, three weeks. Um, now that's gonna have implications down the road and I know what some of those implications are and it's not pretty, uh, but they, like you said, their use case was, get everybody able to have meetings like this and at least have online meetings so that if people are remote, if they're at yep. home, if they're in, you know, stranded somewhere, they're able to have meetings like this and at least communicate. Um, that was their primary use case. They had to get everybody up in a pandemic really fast. So that's mm -hmm. what they did. Um, and they know they're going to have to deal with this after the fact. They have put a few guardrails on it, some things and some communications to people that what you can and can't do. Um, but at least they got everybody able to have meetings, right? And that was a key important thing they had to get done. Right. So it all comes down to the use case. One of the things that I think is really interesting is, I mean, we could we could talk for the next week about how you drive training and adoption at mm -hmm. scale. 
when you're moving that quickly. But one of the things that uh, I have heard of companies doing that I think is really troubling, and Antonio, I'd love to know what you think about this from a records retention perspective. What about those companies that don't want their team's chat and channel conversations to live into perpetuity, right? What about those companies that might roll out teams and then suddenly decide we need to set up retention limits for all of our team's chat? And it happens after the fact. And what I mean by retention limits is we roll out teams, people start using it, they have chat and channel conversations, and then we want to sweep back and decide that those chat and channel conversations can only live for a month or six months or nine months, and then they're going to get wiped clean. That's a major change for your users who may not have planned for that. And that gets you into a really tight pickle of a situation in terms of how do you manage when you've initially rolled it out one way and then you're making a massive change that completely 180 degrees changes the user's perspective on the tool. Agreed, agreed. So so it's it's funny you bring that one up because we've seen that exact scenario come up recently um, in the last two weeks. Um, and I like to treat those two different types of communication separately. So chat separately from channel messages. Um, what I have seen in our firm using Teams, because we use Teams heavily, where every single project that starts up, like we're a consulting company, right? So we're project-based. Every single project that comes up gets a team and we collaborate within that team. That's where our communication happens in the channel posts. We store files there. Sometimes we have multiple channels. Sometimes we integrate apps, yada, yada. The channel messages that I have seen are much more than what we previously did on Skype for Business, right? They're not just one-liners. They're not just, hey, do you have a minute? Um, they are much longer communications. They are often what you would have put in a specification document or a long email, right? Because people now are trying to avoid email and trying to do it through channel posts. So you get these long channel posts. They have diagrams. They have screenshots in them they are no longer just small messages that I think you can have live for only a month, right? Because we have had situations where I need to go back to a project I worked on six months ago because the client is asking questions and if we don't answer them properly, it might lead to a legal issue, right? So it's not it's not okay to say, oh, sorry, the expiry on that happened and I haven't touched in six months, so it got deleted. You can't do that. Um, so it's important to be able to go back and find that stuff. So channel messages, I think, have to live for a longer period of time. Personal opinion from experience. Chat, though, I've seen um, a much shorter retention on. I've seen one organization put a day, so 24 hours on a chat. A day? One day. Wow, I've never I'm heard like, of that. Really? Are you sure you want to do this? Okay. Um, but 30 days, I've heard, is fairly common. Um, mm -hmm. Now, the actual configuration for those retentions, so you would do those through retention policies, right? Because you can have a retention policy for your chat. You can have a separate retention policy for channel messages. Exactly. Um, and that'll deal separately with those, and you push them out to specific teams, and then it deals with that. So the actual mechanics of doing it isn't hard. But I think, and, and Sarah, I'm not, please let me know if, if I'm uh, hitting the right point here, but communicating that you're implementing that change to people Right, the change management around that, I think, is really important because people might be used to them happening one way. It's like, yeah, I can go back to these chat messages I shared with somebody, you know, um, two months ago. Um, and then suddenly you can't anymore. And you go searching yeah, and I can't find it. And, and I know I put this in a chat somewhere and I can't find it. And uh, it might impact the people and their willingness to use the system. But 
Right. Let's also keep in mind not all of our users are experts on Microsoft Teams or on Microsoft products. So if we make a decision about, let's say, channel um, conversations get to live into perpetuity, but chats are automatically, we're going to set a retention policy to purge yep. after 30 days. If you're a brand new user and someone explains that to you when you first start using Teams, a lot easier to accept than when they initially have an unending amount of things and then you're trying to scale it back. Because yeah. now all of a sudden your users are saying, well, why are you doing it? Now you're negatively impacting me. Now I'm being demotivated to use the technology that you have given me that served a valuable purpose. That's yeah, right. I think the hardest piece is trying to sell the retention to the, to the users because the users, if they don't have it, they're used to retain all the information, whether it's a channel conversation, a file, or an email. You go and say, I'm going to implement a seven years retention on your email or SharePoint site or your channel conversation for a year. They're going to have a lot of hard time adopting to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that is one area where I tend to find figuring that out ahead of time, having that as part of your communication, your training plan, at least mildly, right? You want people to understand that there is this notion of retention, that there are certain rules around how long is stuff kept. Um, you don't want people themselves, I personally find, you don't want individual employees to have to figure out how long do I mark this thing to be retained for? Because that's not their job. Right. And that tends to be too complicated. But you want them to know that there is this notion of here's how long these messages live. And if they have to live for longer, well, we need to deal with that. We need to talk about okay. that. Um, so here's an interesting thought to, to kind of look at this and frame up this conversation. What do you think for each of us, what is the one biggest thing that we would advise people to think about before they manage, before they roll out Teams? Um, the self-serve creation of Teams, like the management of the creation of Teams, and uh, we're going to get into a Teams sprawl. That's the number one, I think, that you should look into it and how we can manage that. I... For me, it's a toss up between that and guest access. Um, I tend to lean more towards the same thing that Mike said of self-service creation, figuring out if you want to enable that. If you don't, then how are you gonna handle requests for teams or creating new teams for people? If you do wanna manage, if you do wanna implement self-service, then how are you gonna manage team sprawl? Right, and for me, I'm gonna bring up uh, another point. Um, I agree with both of those. Um, and I think naming conventions is key, and I would almost consider that part of yours, Mike, about auto-creation and naming. But for me, what about third-party apps? Because I think invariably, as soon as users start to use Teams, they're going to hear about some third-party app that they want, and have you considered, are you going to enable third-party apps? If you are, how do people request that? Have you even thought about what that would look like? Yeah, that's a great point. In some of the team's rollouts I've seen, like when you start to, if we go back to your earlier point, Sarah, of the use case, that in the use case for what do you want to use Teams for, right? What What is the objective of Teams in our organization? Um, if you let that drive the rollout, I usually find enabling third-party apps is a later use case. So in many of our customers, we turn that off and that comes later. It's one of the later use cases, like Enterprise Voice. And I think that that's, a, I think actually that's a great idea. If you have to deploy teams and you have to deploy teams quickly, I think that turning that off makes a lot of sense. And it's something you can discuss, make a decision about, turn it off and have that be a very quick initial governance decision and then come back to it later. But I think that that 
even if it's a short conversation and turning it off is a key part of that initial conversation. Agreed. Yeah, and that's something actually I, I took into consideration deploying teams for a government organization here that they want to quickly get on board with M365. So three things I turned off is the third party apps, the private channels and the teams creation because we wanted to control naming convention. So we have to develop the process. So because they want to deploy teams within three weeks, I said, let's turn these things off and we're going to come back and address them at a later phase because let's get the users uh, comfortable with Microsoft Teams uh, without really losing the control over what's happening in Microsoft Teams. We can probably introduce third-party apps afterwards. We can probably introduce private channels afterwards. And then started, people do research and they started asking, oh, what about private channels? I'm like, we can address that later on, but I want you to understand how Teams work before we go and roll out private channels and third-party apps, and don't want to allow you to create Teams today because I want to manage it in a specific process. Now, at the risk of going over our typical time, I'm going to ask you both another question. Uh, very honestly, when it comes to governance and managing Teams, what are your thoughts around private channels and how useful they are? Because we've been running into some challenges with them. Um, I have mixed mixed feelings about it. Uh, private channels are great if you are only in Teams. If you never used, if you never leave Teams, and if you don't have any specific retention based on content types and things like that from a SharePoint side, if you're not a SharePoint user, if you never cross over to SharePoint to manage your documents, private channels are okay. But if you're the type of person that you have been using SharePoint forever, and every time you want to go and jump into the SharePoint side and try to manage documents on the SharePoint from SharePoint, then private channels are your worst nightmare because it's creating a separate site collection and there's no interface to go back and forth right now between both of them. Yeah. I think that that's, uh, I think it's well said. Um, and I think that when you're looking at those private channels, it's important to keep in mind the security aspect. Does your company require attestation of your SharePoint site collections? A lot of companies, especially if they're in a regulated environment, require some level of attestation yeah. um, that has to happen semi-annually or annually. Just keep in mind that right, you're adding to the bulk of yeah. the things that you have to manage, right? And is the usability worth adding that in? Yeah, yeah, it's a fair point. Um, where I was going with that a little bit is we've explore, been exploring those with one government client and some aspects of the architecture do make them difficult to use. So I think, Mike, that's in line with what you're saying where they're used to working within SharePoint sites and they're used to enabling certain services within SharePoint sites, very specialized services. And when you go in to try to do that in the site that gets site collection gets created behind a private channel, it automatically turns them off again. Exactly. So if you have processes, for example, that rely on the document ID service, which yes, is an old service and not a lot of people use, but some people do. So you go turn that on, it then automatically turns it off. So that makes it um, challenging, if not impossible to use in some cases. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it does serve a very particular purpose. And like you said, Mike, if you are working primarily in Teams and not really going behind the scenes in SharePoint, then it might serve that purpose well. Absolutely. And if 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 you you still plan if you still do content types, if you deploy if you deploy Microsoft Teams and you manage the backend files of the shared documents with content types because you want to apply auto retention policies against content types, 
creating private channels is going to be your worst nightmare as well because yeah. now when you create a private channel it's going to create a site collection and you're going to have to go and build that process again that will take care of that content type and you have to match it you're going to have to go be very creative on how to match the content type with with the main team uh, site collection exactly all right well this was a great topic. Um, I love the uh, the two different aspects of the topic. So how do you manage teams? And then how do you govern teams? And how do you approach those two things when you're first rolling it out? Um, so thank you both. I think this was a great topic to talk about. Very timely. I love it. All thank right. You. All right. We'll, well thanks, everyone. Time. All right. We'll see you on another episode soon. All right. See you soon.